0: It's August seventeenth, twenty twenty-three. This is the best of Rook. Hi there! Welcome to episode two hundred and eighty of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Hope you're doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Today's episode is part of a Best of Rook series we are bringing to you for the entire month of August where we're looking back at some of our favorite interviews over the last three and a half years since we launched and some of our most entertaining moments in our opinion, and giving them to you. We've curated our phase and we hope you can check these conversations out, especially if you may have missed them the first time around today. She is an acclaimed author, poet, and scholar who believes that women writers are at the forefront of modernizing and moderating Iranian culture and society. Dr. Farzana Milani is the leading voice on Persian female literature in the world and believes the impact and influence of Iranian women's words is experiencing a renaissance. She's a professor of Persian literature and women's studies and the foremost expert on the great poet Furukh Falaqzad. And Farzana Milani joined me for feature interview about her own life journey and what she's now calling threshold literature. That's coming up plus before this episode is done, we relive a very funny moment on Rook that has to do with Persian pizza and ketchup, something I'll never understand. That's also coming up. We're coming to you on RookMedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Instagram, CastBox. And if you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Remember, you can support what we do at Rook, and we appreciate it, by going to that website, rookmedia.com, R-O-Q-E media.com, and pressing the support us button right there on the, the main page. And you can become a Rook member on our Patreon page for a few bucks a month and support what we do. We really appreciate it. Thank you for that. All right, let's get started. All right. My featured guest for the best of Rook today is an award-winning translator, a poet, an author, and a scholar who has published over 100 articles, epilogues, forwards, and afterwards in Persian And in English, Dr. Farzani Milani is a professor of Persian literature and women's studies at the University of Virginia and a former chair of the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian languages and cultures. She is a recipient of the Carnegie Fellowship and the National Endowment for the Humanities, also of the All University Teaching Award, as well as the Zintel Leadership Award, which she received in 2015. Farzaneh was born in Tehran. She had an international education, attending Catholic co-educational French schools before relocating to the United States in 1967. There, she attended the California State University at Hayward, graduating with a B.A. in French literature before obtaining a Ph.D. in comparative literature at UCLA. In 1986, after a four-year stint at her alma mater as an instructor of Persian language and literature, she took a position at the University of Virginia. Farzaneh has published several books, the literary biography of furu Farzad with unpublished letters, Words Not Swords, Iranian Women Writers and the Freedom of Movement, and her 1992 book, Veils and Words, the Emerging Voices of Iranian Women Writers, has just seen its 16th print printing. Fahad has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, Ms. Magazine, Reader's Digest, and USA Today, as well as appearing on NPR's All Things Considered. She has presented more than 250 lectures internationally, and she's considered the foremost global expert on female Iranian literature and writers. In fact, listening to this interview that was recorded before the Women's Life Freedom Uprising, you will understand just how prescient Ms. Milani's work has been. Dr. Fazane Milani, join me from Charlottesville, Virginia. Here's our conversation. Hello. Uh,
1: Greetings to you, dear Gian. This was uh, too kind and too generous an introduction. I'm most grateful, but allow me to also um, say hello to the wonderful uh, Rook team and to your wonderful audience.
0: You're very kind. You know I've been very much looking forward to this. There's so very much I want to use this valuable opportunity to sit down with you to ask you about. Uh, let me try to distill it uh, for you to, so you know the path that we're taking. I want to get into your story. I want to get into the impact and influence of Iranian female writers. Of course, Fuduq Farrokhzad. we have to talk a bit about. And finally, a, a new concept you have introduced or talked about more recently called threshold literature and the threshold perspective. Hopefully we can get to all of that. Does that sound good?
1: That sounds wonderful. All
0: right well let me start with your passion. You are not just the most valued source and resource in the world when it comes to the study of female literature and writers from Iran and in Iran. You not coincidentally have a real passion for it as well. Why do you have such a personal commitment over the years to the writings of women in Iran?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, You're being too kind and overly generous. Uh, But I can't talk about my passion. You're absolutely right. Um, From early childhood, I had a passion for words. Uh, I loved literature. One of the happiest memories of my childhood is when my mother will take out her Koliyat Divane Hafez, kiss the book, close her eyes, say a short prayer for Hafez, and with her stained, uh, cigarette stained fingers, uh, open it to a random page hmm. and read it to her five children. Uh, sitting in a circle around her. At times, our helpers around the house will join in. To me, this was a magical, mystical moment of communion and communication. Uh, The poetry of Hafez brought us all together. We all became equal partners in listening. So with that in mind, and with the importance of poetry in my childhood and stories, of course, um, I started chasing other dreams and other stories. And that brought me to the United States of America. And once here, as I have repeatedly said it, uh, I became an Iranian after leaving Iran. And I started uh, looking for signposts, for familiar places, uh, for something I I could hold on to. And again, books came to my help. They became my shelter, my refuge, my solace. And in particular, I found the writing of Iranian women writers very helpful. They really helped me find my own voice. They helped me wash my gaze, cleanse my words. Dust off the mirror of my soul. They offered me a surrogate home, a portable Iran. And that's how my journey as a student of Iranian women's writers, Began.
0: You know, I, I have to uh, underscore something you've just said because I just found it so profoundly beautiful. There, there is this beautiful passage in the prologue to your book, Words Not Swords. Um, that you've paraphrased to a certain extent here, uh, uh, it, it is a passage that really intersects as well with our ongoing interest in identity on this program. Uh, I, I want to quote you uh, back to you in, in, in terms of something, as I say, you've just mentioned. You say in this in this prologue, chasing new dreams and different stories, I left my home country, and ironically... It was by leaving Iran that I became an Iranian, uprooted and transplanted. I looked every which way for a sense of familiarity and belonging. I needed something solid to hold on to, some familiar signposts, a lasting fixture in the ceaselessly changing landscape of my immigrant life. Iranian literature became my surrogate home. You've just spoken about that, but I, I wonder if you can go a little bit deeper on the idea of leaving Iran to become Iranian. Uh, it's fascinating, but it I think it's something that many of us could relate to. Can you just meditate on that for a moment?
1: You know, I think identity um, is always evolving, always changing multiple. Uh, so um, when I was in Iran, I was an Iranian in my own country. Um, if you would ask me to identify myself, I would have never said I'm an Iranian. It was understood. It was like the air. It was everywhere. It was so much part of the atmosphere, my surrounding, that there was no need uh, to point it out. But once I left Iran, Once uh, I became an emigrant, and definitely my journey as an immigrant has evolved, has changed for a while. I considered myself strictly an Iranian, and I can tell you it took me several years, in fact decades, to even change my citizenship, even though I had my green card in the early 1970s. Because I I still considered myself an Iranian. It took me a while to realize that unlike Nehru, there was this quotation I remember of Nehru, and I hope I'm not uh, slaughtering it. Uh, It's my memory of it. Nehru once said, I'm a queer mixture of East and West, out of place everywhere, at home, Nowhere. I remember in the early years of our arrival in the United States of America, that was a quotation that spoke to me mm. that I identified with. Uh, I don't now. I think now I feel proud to say I'm an Iranian American. Um I'm not out of place in both countries. I love both countries. And this insider, outsider, has given me a perspective that I think might be of some value.
0: Yes. I mean, you've been described as brilliantly bicultural, you know, that you've thrived in both places you know but I, I this idea of being more of, of leaving Iran to become Iranian it still it plays with my mind I, I like the idea I want to try to understand it do you think that it's partly because we leave Iran and we then realize how different we are in the West or do you think it's that we leave Iran and suddenly have an appreciation the way one does when one grows up and isn't around one's parents all the time and go oh they, I, now I really appreciate what they, they were doing all those years is it something like that
1: um, you know this is a wonderful question and I hope my answer will not disappoint you but I think identity is dialogical. I think we become different people in different relationships, in different surroundings, in different countries. In my own country, it was understood, it was taken for granted that I am an Iranian. Right. When I came here, my relationship with my adoptive land was a different relationship Um, the fact that i did not speak the language or very little of it when i first came the fact that i still have an accent the fact that after all these years more than half a century i still make mistakes regarding gender there are times that i will address a man as she (laughs) uh, or a woman as he because On some deep level, I still think as an Iranian and the Persian language is not gender marked. Yes. There is no he and she in the Persian language. Um, So um, I had to leave the country to become aware of this one layer of my identity. One of my most favorite books uh, is a book by this French author, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's called The Little
0: Prince. Le Petit Prince. I, uh,
1: le, yes, mm. yes. Um, I love that book and um, I think I know most of it by heart. But the fox, at some point, mm-hmm. um, gives the little prince a wonderful advice. He tells the little prince says the most important things in life are invisible to the eyes my identity as an iranian was as important to me when i was in iran but it was not visible Mm -hmm. it became visible after i left iran Mm. Uh, it became a marker of me, of the way I looked, the way I talked, uh, the way I composed myself in public places, uh, the way I looked, the way I listened. Uh, All of these uh, were clues to my interlocutors that I'm not one of them, that I am a guest for a while, I felt as an outsider, now, again, I think it's a privilege, I consider it a privilege, that I am now an insider and outsider.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I'm gonna get to your decision to become, uh, to embrace being an outsider and then become an insider uh, in, in just a little bit, but let me stick with, you were just talking about your, your childhood and growing up, and your life story so far, it's not necessarily one of material struggle i mean you you didn't grow up poor or, or without resources but but it is of a struggle to really push to follow your passions in the realm in which we've been discussing. Uh, First of all, you've said that you were supposed to study, and by supposed to study, I imagine that means uh, the the parental pressure. Uh, You were supposed to study medicine, but you of course loved language and literature. And there's this moment in your life when both your father and your husband were pushing you to be a dentist. You've called that the biggest rebellion you ever had in your life, to try and push against that, and successfully so, as we now know. Give us a sense of how that played out.
1: Yes. Uh, thank you so much for this amazing uh, time you have spent uh, studying uh, my life. And uh, I feel honored and uh, humbled by what you have done. Thank you. Um, so um, there are two sentences um, that I remember as a motto uh, in my father's life. He always said, I will sell even the rug under my feet for the education of my five children. Hmm. And I can tell you, He did that, as did my mother. Uh, Their devotion, like all Iranian parents, is really a source of great pride for uh, all of us, their dedication to the education of their children. The other motto that he loved to say and repeat was that I'm gonna build a big building uh, with five stories. And the first one will say Dr. Hossein Emilani. Milani. <laughs> the second floor will be Dr. Hassan Emilani, Milani. Right. And, you know, the hierarchy was age. Um, uh, I was the only daughter, but I'm the middle, the third child. Mm. I was right in the middle, the third floor. And then Dr. Abbas Emilani, Milani, Dr. Mohsen Emilani. Milani. My father loved medicine. I think he wanted to become a doctor himself, but circumstances did not allow him to do so. And so he always argued, even when I was much younger and loved uh, literature, he always told me, look, Farzan, become a doctor. And back then, he wouldn't even accept dentistry as an option. (laughs) Right,
0: right, right. To down market, the dentistry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So become a doctor and write all the poetry you want. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But look, every doctor can be a poet, but no poet can be a doctor or a dentist in my case. Right. So in fact, um, I did go to dental school for two years, I uh, um, back in Iran, National University um, uh, of Tehran, um, finished two years, and then we moved to the U.S., and I was going to go back to dental school. That was the understanding. That uh, was the unwritten contract. Uh, but I had to start working uh, for family reasons. And I think working and realizing how important it is to have a passion in life, uh, other than your family, uh, that in order for your profession to become your passion. Uh, I realized that because uh, I went um, uh, to uh, Cal State in Hayford um, in order to prepare um, to go to dental school. And I started uh, taking courses in French literature, and I absolutely loved it. And then I stopped going to school Uh, for three or four years, and I worked uh, to put my husband through school. Uh, He went back to dental school at USC. And by that time, I was convinced uh, my passion in life, other than relationships, other than just life itself, Mm -hmm. is literature. And I will admit to you, it was a very difficult decision. Both my husband and my father uh, wanted me to uh, become a dentist and to pursue dentistry as a field. And as my father would continue to remind me, pursue poetry
0: also. <laughs> but the, the the weird part is, and, and by the way, I went through this exactly with my father, and, and my father, like your father, valued... Um, and education above all else. But doesn't becoming a professor of uh, literature, getting the PhD, doesn't that count? I mean, that doesn't that count as one of the, the floors on the building? <laughs> <laughs> like you and Abbas? I mean, I mean, rather than, does it have to be a medical doctor? This is one of these things that we discuss over and over on this show, because it's so reductive. It's always been medical doctor or engineer. And sometimes yeah. I don't understand why it was so limited to those two things.
1: Yes. Well, because my father always believed that as a medical doctor, uh, or later on, he, he, he added dentistry to the list, um, you can always have economic independence. Um, right. He insisted on that. And it is also fascinating that he wanted this for his own daughter uh, also. And my father was not very highly educated, he was an importer-exporter. Uh, he was a businessman, and for him uh, to have such amazingly egalitarian views yes. of, of men and women really boggles my mind to this day. Uh, but the main reason for him was was that. Um, I'm not sure about myself. I hope that he was uh, also um, not disappointed in what I did, but I know he was very proud of my brothers, and I know one of my brothers actually did follow the field Mm. of medicine and became a physician.
0: If the first rebellion was... uh... Uh, pushing against the notion that you had to go into medicine and and following your passion of literature, there is a second rebellion that happens once you are in America and you are studying literature. And you're going to finish your Ph.D. thesis on and in French literature, Flaubert and Madame Bovary, and then you pivot to the study of Persian writers and in particular, of course, Fouduk Fanoch much to the chagrin of your academic advisors and those around you one of them tells you that this is going to be professional suicide quote unquote why was the lure of iranian literature so strong for you to in that moment make that dramatic shift
1: no it's um so interesting what you're saying uh you know there are certain things to go back to the little prince Um, Some of the most important things in life are invisible to the naked eye. Um, But recently, for Women's um, History uh, Month, um, I was interviewed by some of the students um, at UVA, and their last question was, uh, what would your advice be uh, to women who want to pursue uh, a career in your field. And it was interesting. It didn't take me a split of a second. Um, my response was follow your heart. Hmm. It will never mislead you. So I think, in a way, the reason I pursued the field of comparative literature, you know, I switched major again. I went from dentistry to French literature. From French literature to comparative literature. I I had become a butt of joke. You know, people (laughs) said, uh, dear friends lovingly said that she will never finish a degree. (laughs) As soon as she's close to the finish line, she's going to switch again. Uh, but i did. And, and
0: by the way you know you you were groundbreaking in your study of fotofatozud so there there wasn't really a great blueprint for what you were doing it's not like there had been thousands of other women studying this before so that would to the outsider or to those around you your loving uh, circle or whatever make it seem even more zany right what is it you're doing Fazanaj?
1: <laughs> yes first i have to acknowledge that uh, Professor Ardalone Davaran had written a dissertation at UC Berkeley. It was a comparison of uh, Farooq Farooq and Sylvia Plath. I believe his dissertation, I'm not sure now, it's either in comparative literature or Persian literature, but he had done that. But to the best of my knowledge, My dissertation was um, one of the earlier ones that focused only on an Iranian uh, women writer. And I have to say, not every professor at UCLA, not everyone thought uh, the same, but I remember vividly the day uh, one of my professors uh, who thought I was doing well uh, in the French Department told me that it's a triple professional suicide, uh, this move, um, that um, as a woman, as an Iranian woman writing on another Iranian woman, and both of us with unpronounceable name, uh, that this was going to be um, a, a triple suicide, that he thought that I will never be able to find a job. and. Um, And, you know, to be fair, at the time, uh, world literature uh, was not what it is today. Mm -hmm. If you looked at the anthologies, the few available anthologies at the time of um, world literature, you would rarely see references to modern literature in Iran. So, you know, I was doing something not only on Iranian literature, but also on modern literature, and worse yet, on a woman.
0: Do you remember Uh, why you and how you soldiered on? I mean, you could be forgiven if at that point you'd defer to... The authority of some successful professor, some advisor, saying, "This is professional suicide. Don't do this." And uh, you, you know, uh, even even to regret it later. But you wouldn't be the first person if you chose to stay with your oh. French uh, literature study. How did you make the decision to soldier on?
1: Again, um, I'm sure these uh, important decisions. Uh, these turning points in one's life don't have a single reason behind them. I'm sure uh, there were uh, several factors contributing to it, um, not the least of which is this uh wonderful professor I had, uh, Professor Amin Banani, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, who believed this is indeed the right decision. Um, But, you know, it was a passion uh, for me. It was something I loved. I did not think about the future. I did not think about whether or not I would be able to find a job. I, and I'm not proud to say these things at this point. I got lucky. I um, I was hired upon graduation, and I taught at UCLA for four years before coming to the University of Virginia, and yes. I've been here 37 years yes. now. Um, so, um, you know, um, luck was, of course, a very important factor, but I think what helped me was absolute passion I had, um, for, um, by that time for Iranian women, poets and writers, and in particular, for ruhl
0: Jobs do become available to you, not just in the U.S. And back to this notion of the, the Iranian who, uh, leaves Iran to find out she's Iranian or to really discover that she's Iranian. I should note that you came to America at the age of 20 in 1967. Um, Your brother Abbas also came, but with the intention of returning to Iran, which he did in the 1970s. You stayed in the West. And right when you make this shift in your PhD and complete it and, uh, and you end up teaching in UCLA, but you had a scholarship to teach at the University of Tehran when you first graduated in 1979, as I understand it. Did you ever regret uh, that you did not go back?
1: No, I, I'm sorry. I did not have a scholarship. I had an invitation. Okay. Uh, the Department of Comparative Literature at Tehran University was newly founded, and I had a PhD in comparative literature from a premier institution. Um, I got an invitation to uh, go and teach there. Um, Not so bad. University of Tehran is not so bad. It was one of the proudest moments uh, of my life. Uh, But at that time, as you might recall, um, the revolution had happened. Uh, I was here. I had already at that time uh, two uh, children. And uh, I did not go back.
0: Has there ever been a moment where you wonder about what it would have been like for you if you did go back? I mean, even professionally in terms of your area of study?
1: Of course. Of course. Uh, You know, the the older I get, uh, the more uh, I think about the past. And these turning moments, these uh, threshold moments in my life, I think, I think about them. Uh, I try to better understand them. Uh, But um, of course, uh, I do think about them. And I will tell you, the most important reason I think about them uh, is because of my parents. I uh, did not have the privilege to be with them uh, when they were older. And I do think about that. I, um, the decision to stay here uh, had wonderful, uh, wonderful, uh, offered me wonderful opportunities and all that. But uh, I do think about the fact that it did deprive me mm. of the privilege uh, to be closer to my parents and perhaps uh, help them uh, when they were older, uh, only in terms of being a presence in their lives. Of life. course,
0: of course. Let, let me shift to the work you have done um, since that moment uh, and the impact and influence of Iranian female writers, your focus for the last four decades or so. You've said, one of the things you've said a few times, uh, Farzaneh, is that, is that in the last 170 years, Women have been at the forefront of, as you say, moderating and modernizing. They've been at the forefront of a moderating and modernizing movement in Iran and the Islamic world. What does that mean?
1: Yes, uh, I have said that. In fact, I have also said that I believe not only two, but three revolutions have happened in Iran in the last century and a half. Uh, We have the Constitutional Revolution of 1905, 1911. We have the 1979 Revolution. And I believe there is a third revolution that completely changed gender relations and the cultural and political landscape in Iran, and that's the women's revolution. By that, I don't mean that it was only women who did this revolution, although I think they were at the forefront of it, but there were many men who were instrumental and who were best support of this uh, desegregating, moderating, modernizing revolution even though it was bloodless uh, even though it took a long time it, it didn't happen uh, overnight i am convinced that uh, even though when uh, the overall overwhelming majority of um, of scholars who write about modernity in iran Uh, who write about the cultural landscape in Iran, uh, do not give a central place to the role women have played. I think it's impossible to talk about modernity in Iran, about the reforms in Iran, uh, about the amazing changes, the desegregation of Iran. Uh, without focusing on the high price women have paid and the amazing role they have played in that um, movement,
0: fascinating. Just to just to <laughs> clarify, as you're talking about it, what is what would be the timeline of that third revolution? Is that happening parallel through that 150 years of the of through the 20th century, or are you, are you talking? Yes. yes. So this yes. is before the the, Revolu- the the Islamic revolution of 79.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the beginning uh, of this moderating um, movement, desegregating movement, can be traced back to 170 years ago. Um, You know, social movements uh, are not like pregnancy. Um, You cannot give a specific date for them. (laughs) Uh, I realize that, but um, to just give you a date, uh, you know, 1848 is considered a very important year for a variety of reasons in the world. Um, But in particular, when it comes to women's movements, there is a lot of focus uh, in at least the Western world, on the Seneca Falls Convention. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of it for many. It is the beginning of the women's movement in the United States of America and uh, in the West. Now, two weeks prior to the Seneca Falls Convention, there was uh, a congregation in uh, um, Badasht, in northwestern Iran where a woman, also a poet, uh, entered uh, an all-male, like usual, segregated space of 81 men. She, uh, She unveiled her face, but more importantly, she unveiled her voice. And um, so she became a body with a voice and a voice with a body. Mm. And I consider that moment a turning point. I consider it as important as the Seneca Falls Convention. Now Tahere believed um, in a body faith, and as you know, uh, she is... Uh, um, major figure in the Baha'i faith uh, she was one of the first 19 disciples of Bob a woman and you know if we want to understand the significance of what she did perhaps we should study that congregation a little bit more yeah. one man uh, wanted to um, kill Qurat uh, Qurratul Ain Some men closed their eyes. They could not allow the sanctity of their eyes or their ears um, to be violated by the presence or the voice of a woman in an all-male territory. Another man, one Abdul Khaliq Isfahani, uh, slit his own throat that's how disoriented he felt, oh, boy. You know, um, with the presence of this woman uh, in this gathering. And splattered with blood, he left the premises. I've been very interested in his life, I've been very interested in writing at least a short biographical sketch of uh, Mr. Abdul Khaliq Isfahani. I sympathize with him. I understand how difficult it must have been for him um, to suddenly see a woman in a space that did not allow the presence of a woman. But you know, when he left the premises at Badasht, he also left the pages of Iranian history. At least I have not been able to find much information about him beyond that. But That scene, in a nutshell, gives us a taste of the significance of desegregation in Iran. I want to bring to your attention that even today, in most family reunions, you know, extended family, of course, Iranians have a wonderful love of family and extended family. It would not surprise me that you will see a group of men in one corner and a group of women in another corner. To me, this is the remnant of that segregation, mm. of that division of space between men and
0: women. I have so many questions I want to ask you uh, based on what you've just said. Let me try and limit them to, to three because I know I can't keep you here for a week. But, but, but in the book, Veils and Words from 1992 the yearbook you argued that the veil had covered not only Iranian women's bodies but also their literary output this speaks to the idea that to take your your thesis that the moderating and the modernizing was being happening was was happening by Iranian female writers not necessarily visibly so so much of the story of literary works and texts produced by Iranian women in the past is the lack of any visibility how how would our definitions of modernity have changed if women writers' voices had been more prominently heard?
1: Well, the voices of Iranian women have been heard, and women paid a very high price for it. I mean, if you uh, study uh, the lives of Iranian women writers in the last 100 years, 70 years, you might find yourself surprised and awed uh, by the willingness um, of women to pay this price. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of examples. Tahira Quratul Ain was executed at the age of 36. Palvini Etesoni died of a mysterious typhoid fever at the age of 34. Furukh Farah uh, died in a car accident after a number of attempted suicides at the age of 32. I, I can give you a long list of Iranian women writers uh, who have attempted suicide, who have succeeded in their suicide. Um, who have uh, paid an incredibly high price, who have suffered um, deep depression, um, who have been hospitalized, institutionalized, who have uh, suffered uh, um, separation from their children. Um, So the price has been exuberant, but the gains have also been awesome. Jian, it is impossible to talk about Iranian literature these days and not to talk about Iranian women writers and poets inside Iran or in diaspora. In effect, Persian literature, the glorious arena of Persian literature, has been desegregated you know, earlier, who are the people that uh, the world knew about um, when it came to Iranian literature? It was Saadi, and, and it was Hafez and it was Omar Khayyam, and it was Ferdowsi, and it was Attar. All wonderful, wonderful. Uh, they deserve to be celebrated even more. I always say that Iranian literature is one of the still to this day, one of the most undiscovered treasures of world literature. There is still so much to be translated. There is still so much to be done in terms of literary criticism and um, life narratives and the rest of it. But whereas two decades ago, three decades ago, four decades ago, um, it was an all-male arena. Mm. Um, it, it's impossible to talk about Iranian literature now, and not to talk about some of these women poets, novelists, and, uh, not to applaud of what they have done.
0: How does the the revolution of seventy nine I'm I'm imagining it. Surely it threw a curveball into the progress that uh, women writers were were making in, in, in the moderating and modernizing realm. When you talk about in, in one of your most recent books, "Words Not Swords," you've talked about your uh, as a focus on women writers in Iran. You say it's really about sex segregation in the Islamic world, which you've talked a bit about. If it's about undoing that segregation for all those, for the the 130 years preceding the the revolution, what happens after 1979?
1: Well, we cannot talk about it um, and generalize it. Um, Four decades have passed, and uh, these 40 years have been um, different. Uh, One thing is for sure that there is uh, now a renaissance uh, of uh, women's writing, uh, both inside and outside the country. Mm -hmm. But to only talk about inside the country, let me give you an example. We focused mainly on poetry. Uh, Let me give you an example of uh, prose. The first major uh, collection of short story, uh, was written by Simin Daneshvar. Fire Quenched, uh, atash khamush uh, was published in 1944. Um, and uh, then, of course, her masterpiece, which I consider still a masterpiece of modern Persian literature, Savashun, was published in 1967. Uh, and I'm Now I'm about to use the research of uh, literary critiques inside the country in those early years um, of um, women's entrance into prose writing. uh, Even though it's fascinating that women have been the ultimate storytellers and it goes back to Shahrazad, the ultimate storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, But the arena of publishing, um, giving voice to your body and body to your voice, um, that lasted uh, a long time for women uh, to gain access to the public domain. If in the 40s, um, the number of women novelists were um, about two dozen, in recent decades, um, we have 370 women novelists inside the
0: country. Basically as many as men.
1: As many as men. Yeah. Uh, we also have wonderful translators. Uh, we have women uh, publishers, and that is so important because then they can publish the works that perhaps other publishers will not consider Um, important and topical, Um, so there is a a renaissance and um, although uh, fortunately she has passed away, uh, the role that Simin Behbahani played in um, the years after the revolution uh, by becoming uh, the voice of dissent in Iran, uh, by writing the kind of history of the last 40 years, that you cannot find in history books, uh, by becoming the lioness of Iran, mm. by being considered by people, not the government, um, their poet, their national poet. Uh, so things have changed, and there is definitely uh, an amazing um, renaissance. And if I am hopeful about the future, One of the reasons uh, is the incredible struggle of women in Iran, including women writers at the forefront.
0: Let me come back to the modern day and where we're at right now. Before we do that, though, I I just want to take a couple of steps back. And um, I said at the top that we we must talk about Furukh Farzad. And uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to ask you about her because You've had something of a lifelong love story with her w- works and her presence. And, uh, and of course, as we noted earlier, you did that dissertation. You did your Ph.D. on Furukhi. In fact, your thesis was called Furukh Falzad, A Feminist Perspective. She has been someone central to your work for many years. When did you first encounter her writing?
1: You might be surprised uh, if I tell you that my original introduction to Furo was in fact not her poetry or her writing, but her film. The
0: film, I was gonna, okay, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I vividly recall uh, it was one hot summer day, uh, the smell of jasmine everywhere. And um, I was in the little garden my parents had, and um, I was a young teenager. And from the yard, I could see um, the television screen, which was in the living room, and I was stunned uh, by what I saw in one uh, split of a second—disfigured um, images, but majestic, dignified images of uh, of patients, of patients who suffered from leprosy. Yes, uh, I could barely look at them, but I could also not stop looking at it. I remember I could barely sleep that night. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm now putting words in the mouth of Farzan Milani of uh, six decades ago, five and a half decades ago. But if I could uh, use what I now think is so unusual about this film, the compassion of the director that um, who had done that film, uh, the capacity uh, to turn something, and I don't want to use the word, but some something that we did consider unsightly, unbeautiful. To turn it into such an aesthetic experience, uh, to return to these people who were ostracized for no fault of their own uh, was a, a biological conundrum. They, they, were, um, they were sick um, to literally turn them into prisoners, uh, into a colony. And to turn that film into that experience that someone like me could not stop watching it was my first introduction to Furo And from then, uh, she became a companion.
0: You've said that... Uh Furu Farahzad was a self-consciously modern poet. Uh, And I I mean, she was unquestionably modern by mid-20th century Iranian standards. What is the self-conscious part?
1: Oh, um, everything about her poetry. Um, You know, she was a pusher of uh, all boundaries, Uh, She was a woman who was not only a seeker after truth and beauty and authenticity, but also after the right of an individual. She was a woman, a poet, a cinematographer uh, who believed in the right of the individual, but more importantly, who believed. In the responsibility that came with that freedom. You know, the first poem, the first major poem she ever published is called, I Sinned." Hmm. This, this was in the early 1950s in Iran, you know, the, the time of the coup d'etat of uh, 1953, uh, where everybody was pointing as someone, at someone else as the culprit. A woman in her um, early 20s wrote a piece and published a piece with her name, with two photographs of herself saying, no, I'm the one who sinned. I sinned. She took full responsibility for what she considered at the time her sin. In that 12-line poem, there is no partner in sin. She takes pride in owning her body and her desire. She rejects the fact that women have been denied the right to have access to their sexual needs and desires the way they wanted to, but there is no partner in sin. She is the responsible party, and she did that to the end of her life, if taking full responsibility for her needs, and her desires, was how she started. She finished with one of the most modern, one of the most important, um, iconic um, poems of modern Persian literature. It's called I feel sorry for the garden, the lamb In it, I believe, for the first time, an Iranian predicted the revolution, and that was in the 1960s. To the best of my knowledge, no one had predicted that a revolution was to happen. In that poem, there is a clear reference to the fact that a revolution is on its way. And what does she say in that poem? She says, I feel sorry for the garden because the garden is dying a death Hmm. and no one is paying any attention. And um, she takes a family um, as the unit, and she blames the father, the mother, the brother, and the sister for not taking their civic duty seriously. And, you know, it's a beautiful poem. You know, the father reads Shahnameh and... is happy with past glories, and uh, the mother is constantly praying, and um, the sister is now uh, living on the other side of the city and doesn't care about um, the poverty of other people, and the fact that the garden is dying a death, uh, a painful death. And the brother, who is an intellectual uh, uh, philosopher of some kind, Takes his despair um, to um, a wine shop and drinks it away, and and then at the end, and that's what I love about the writing of women. Most of overwhelming majority of them is that they don't believe in violence. At the end, she repeats it three times. She says, but I know this garden that is dying can't be taken to a hospital. I know it, I know it, I know it, she says. I often ask myself, what would have happened if our politicians would have listened more carefully to our women writers?
0: Well, she was famously ostracized by um, many elements of those who were in power. She dies in her 30s, quite tragically. The story that you've been, th- the fact that folks like you have been bringing her story to light publicly, have been um, putting her name back in, in, into the consciousness in a much bigger way, What are the implications of that? What does it mean to recast the private story of a female individual who did so much as public history?
1: It's a rewriting of the history. And you know that history has been written mainly by men all over the world, but definitely in Iran. It is um, desegregating an arena that has not paid enough attention to the significant role women have played both inside the home and now more and more outside of it. And I have to say the most important people who are making sure The name of Fulukh Farohzad uh, is eternal. Are the people of Iran, are um, Iranians inside and outside the country? It's their amazing, um, awe-inspiring love of her work. Uh, You know, I'm very interested in women's uh, life narratives and um, an avid reader of them. It really is a source of joy to me to see how many of these women have said in one form or another that when they left Iran, one of the few things they made sure to bring with them uh, was a book of Furukh Farah one of her poetry collections. Now, many. I have to say that um, you know poetry is so important to us, um, to Iranian, and I love that about my culture. But these are uh, the the youth in Iran. Uh, you know, when you go to Zahiroddoleh, I haven't been back to Iran for the last nineteen years, uh, alas. Uh, but. Prior to that, when I could go, every time uh, I did go to Zahira Dole a few times, and I did go because it was a study uh, in how young people congregated uh, in Zahira Dole, brought their books of uh, Farrokhzad's poetry, brought candles and flowers, and sat around uh, that grave and read out loud her beautiful poetry. It was really, for me, a moment of magic and mystery. Uh, a moment that I thought, as long as we have such people in Iran, no one will be able to slaughter uh, messages of people like Furul Farah
0: I'm so grateful to get to uh, learn from you and to ask you these questions and to have your your time uh, to do this. I thank you. I said that I was going to return to the modern day before we finish this off. And you you said a few moments ago that you believe there is a renaissance among women creatives uh, coming out of Iran. And and you've talked very, very recently um, there was a a series of pieces that you wrote in BBC Persian uh, about the surprising splendor of what is happening at a crossroads of opposites, you've called the threshold. Right. Can you talk about this threshold, threshold literature?
1: Of course, uh, with great pleasure. You know, I believe at the intersection of opposites, marvels can be created. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, At the break of dawn, uh, when light and darkness coexist, and our ancestors, uh, in their infinite wisdom, called it Gorgonish, wolf, sheep, you know, the two enemies Hmm. coming together, uh, light and darkness. That's when. The sun rises. When sunlight and falling rain coexist, a rainbow is created, a bridge um, connecting um, heaven and earth. I think the same thing happens when one refuses to see the world in terms of binary opposites. Heroes or villains, right or wrong, east or west, here or there, us or them. What I see happening uh, inside the country but definitely among women writers in diaspora, is the birth of a new kind of literature. I call it threshold literature. Uh, um, Threshold because these women are standing um, at the threshold. You know, in Iran, uh, I remember, uh, at least in my family, uh, when we traveled, when we went for an important exam, my mother would always uh, hold the Quran over our head. And uh, at the threshold, nowhere else. At the threshold. And of course, uh, Jews um, have a mezuzah that they hang um, at the doorframe. And I've always been fascinated by this um, question, what is so important about um, this, the architecture uh, of um, a threshold, ostane? Um, we call it ostane, and I have to add um, that it has a central place in Farah poetry, and it has a central place in the writing of uh, women novelists writing in diaspora, Um, women who have been winning all kinds of awards, unusual as it is both in terms of the significance of it and the numbers of it. Um, So at that point, um, you know, where the exit and the entrance are co-joined, where possibilities and challenges uh, happen at that space, um, something happens, something um, that, that can be dangerous, but also something that can be um, beautiful like a rainbow, life-giving, uh, life uh, like the rise uh, of sun uh, every morning. Mm. Um, so the writing of women writers in the last 20 years uh, in a few languages that I know, um, books that have been written in the languages of the host countries. Um, I see them at the threshold of East and West. Uh, I see them trying to see the world in terms of and rather than or, Hmm. uh, good and bad right and wrong, hero and villain. Yeah. Um, and th- if I may add, um, the program uh, you and your team uh, um, have uh, started, to me, is another clear indication of This refusal to submit to binary modes of thought, Mm -hmm. um, this refusal to be a prisoner of geography, of um, conventions, of borders, uh, this uh, beautiful attempt to bring East and West together.
0: Thank you. Thank you to be try and be that nexus. I appreciate you, you saying that. By the way, my mother still holds the Quran above my head at the threshold, even if I want to go to the local gas station. So, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm very familiar with the, the concept of that. But let me ask you about the the threshold, where it inter- I mean, if if you're talking about a, a more nuanced perspective that comes with the wealth of one foot in the east and one foot in the west and all of the opposites that you've talked about where does that intersect with i say quite sadly what i see is uh, a very Manichaean, you know, the opposite of that it, it, it culture that we have sometimes in the Iranian diaspora, particularly in the political realm, where people oh are very black and white about what they like yeah. or dislike or or their reactions to a simple Facebook post or, or whatever it is, you know, yes. h- h- how do these things meet this, this beautiful threshold perspective you're talking about and this Black and white Manichaean, as I say, um, way that the, our, our community can be?
1: Yes, that's such a wonderful question. Thank you. So uh, let me call to my help uh, a great poet philosopher uh, who, with amazing economy of word, uh, answers your question in one line of poetry. Uh, It's um, a line from Masnavi and Manavi uh, by uh, Mulana, our master, uh, a poet-philosopher, justifiably called Hegel of the East. And um, I'm going to hopefully remember the whole line. This is Rumi, by
0: the way, for those listening who don't know Mulana. Yes, Rumi, Rumi,
1: exactly, yes. So um, it says, Jange, as in as so a very rough translation of it is the clash of opposites is as old as time itself the harmony of opposite harmony between opposites is eternity itself. Mm-hmm. And there is eternity, that's paradise-like, right? In paradise, according to at least Islam, um, death dies. Um, in paradise, we are no longer subject uh, to the passage of time. It's eternal. So what Rumi is telling us is that whereas um, these bipolar views, these unwillingness to compromise, um, this unwillingness to accept the fallibility of human beings, these unresolved conflicts are, are as old as time itself, as old as humanity itself. Paradise, peace, is when we stand at the threshold, we accept that um, we are both inside and outside. We are always an insider and an outsider. It was a revelation to me, after studying Furukh for decades, when I realized that Astaneh for her, I kept saying, but if my understanding of threshold literature is that it's at the border, it's an in-between space, um, it's a third space. She wrote these poems when she was inside her country. She was not an emigrant hmm. when she wrote these poems. And then I realized feeling an outsider has nothing to do with geography. Right. It's a function of how we feel about ourselves and about those around us. So yes, she wrote about Astane, and um, some of her most beautiful poems include Astane. In fact, one of my most favorite of her poems, salami Dobare khaham I Will Greet the Sun Again. The last five lines of that poem have four references to Astane, to Threshold. She felt an outsider inside her own country.
0: It's a beautiful segue to a final question, because I want to ask a a final question around identity, around the diaspora, and around being outsiders to a certain extent. Uh, If your story is that you really became Iranian in terms of your consciousness once you left Iran, it is something that many of us can relate to in one way or another, with that backdrop, is it fair to say that the work that people of Iranian descent outside of Iran do is as writers, for example, is as important to the future of Iranian culture and our place in the world as what is being done inside Iran? You
1: know, my answer is very short. Is And I rarely have such definitive answers for anything. Yes, it is as important. And um, I listened with great joy uh, your interviews with, with people I dearly love and respect, with Khanu Mekar, with Shahnush Parsipur. I have great respect for their work. I have learned a great deal from them, from their books. I read them and reread them. Um, and I listened um, with um, uh, sorrow to um, their despair of being outside of Iran. And I respect what they say. And we find creativity where, where we can. I cannot uh, talk about that, but I can say what Sharnoosh Parsipur has done outside of Iran, what Mekar has done outside of Iran, what all these amazing writers, both male and female, are doing outside of Iran. And I only mention writers because that's my field. Um, is as important to the future of the country we all love and we all pray for its future and welfare as those who are writing inside the country.
0: I thank you so much for this today. It has been a, a highlight for me. It is a conversation I will remember, and I so appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you, Dianjan. It was a pleasure. Khoudafiz. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: This is Rook episode 280, the best of Rook. You know, there are various occasions on the program where stories are told and laughter ensues. And sometimes it has to do with learning and trying to understand the practices of Iranians that can be quite different from those of us, even those of us of Iranian background, who grew up in the West. In this installment of the Rook Funnies, this was a moment from a couple of years ago when I'm explaining to the Rook team, Reza, Shia, Kion, That I really don't understand the gastronomical Persian tradition of putting ketchup on pizza. Here on the Best of Rook, this is the puzzle of Persian pizza. The point of Persian pizza is. Uh, do you, do you know where I'm going with, with this? I totally think I know it, where you There's with no it. tomato sauce. That's right. <laughs> right, right. It's pizza with, uh, like, I don't know what this decision was, like, where the yeah. decision, what what authorities in in Tabrishiraz, <laughs> tab- you know, made the decision. Pizza, you know, the funny thing is, most Persian stews, as someone who enjoys cooking Persian food, I will remind you, Kian, since you always seem yes, to forget yes. that I you're cook quite Persian. Good at it. Food, yes. Uh, a lot of our stews are based in tomato, you Mm -hmm. know? So, but no, when it comes Uh, to the pizza, the Persians have to do something different. We are using no tomato. (laughs) So what that means is... (laughs) You put ketchup. Ketchup on it. So the pizza arrives, there's like four boxes of pizza and everybody's, oh, mm. pizza, Persian pizza. And and then there's this bag and I open the bag and the, a bag that's teeming with, like piled <laughs> with packages of ketchup, <laughs> right? As if you've got, as if you just ordered a dozen, you know, large fries at Mickey D's at McDonald's, you know, so that, so, and, and I'm like, well, what are we, and then there's like a bunch of packages of like some white looking like, a, as just like tzatziki. So it's a, so it's a mac-
1: I don't know why they call it this. Yeah,
0: Sosa Mahsous, which actually just turns out to be like lame, lame salad dressing. It's like ranch. (laughs) Exactly. ranch. So apparently to to our dear non-Persian friends or to those of us in the diaspora who were so naive about this, you basically, you take your pizza and you cover the pizza in ketchup. Yeah that's right. <laughs> and then maybe some ranch dressing. I mean, what is happening uh, here?
1: Is it not delicious though? Uh, it's once in a while, not
0: you know, not as often. You as know regular what? The pizza, pizza was delicious, mm-hmm. but it also tasted like pizza with ketchup on it. Yeah. Still That's delicious. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs>
1: I'm starving. And so that, and
0: and, sh- and to Shia, yes. to you, this is normal, right? Of course, you put uh, ketchup yeah, on the pizza. Yeah, it's normal that people right, ketchup right. on pizza. So so if you go to a pizza parlor uh-huh. in in Tehran, is there just like is there ketchup on the tables? Like oh yeah, Pe-
1: <laughs> for the most part, they even pour it on like without even they ask without asking you. They, they just put, put they ketchup, ketchup on, on the, the pizza. Yeah. I
0: mean, the thing is, it's it's a weird thing because the pizza was actually quite delicious without the tomato sauce and without the lame, the, the, first of all, generic ketchup, of course, right? It wasn't like good ketchup. It was like some, the cheapest brand of ketchup, this bag of <laughs> cheap ketchup. To, and, and why Why destroy the beautiful pizza with the ketchup? But I like I can feel the audience around the world. You have the Persians going, how did you not know? Of course we put in pizza asile. We put the ketchup on the pizza. And, you know, we invented pizza. And, but uh, to me, it was, it was was a very strange experience
1: you liked it without the ketchup
0: i i first of all the ranch dressing i don't know what that i don't know what <laughs> why why you know and
1: i, I, I don't know that part. i
0: mean maybe caddy or something Ew. You know? <laughs> no. I, no. I, I, I don't know like a ranch dressing anyways yeah. but the, the the pizza no i kind of got it i got why you put it on because it needs a little extra tang but i would uh, maybe i put hot sauce or, or mm-hmm. something um but it's so it's it's Persian pizza, at least this Persian pizza, it's quite thick, it's like deep dish, it's almost like a, it looks like quiche or something, but like, a, um, not the vacation spot, Chaya. But, and, uh, and and then and then you put ketchup on it anyway. I mean that obviously is is, is obvious to everyone now as well. I remember uh, somebody I had been dating before, like once we had uh, uh, we had ordered pizza and uh, like a Persian person and she and she had said, uh, "Oh, do you have ketchup?" And I was like, "Well, who? Is she? She's a weirdo. What's this ketchup?" <laughs> thing? Now it turns out I was the weirdo for not putting ketchup on yeah. the pizza. Actually, in Tehran, when we went to a restaurant and uh, the a waiter um, approached us and said, Oh, do you want Sosa Mahsus? And we all said, yes, why, why not? And they meant arak, Araq Kishmish by Sosa Makhsous. No, wait a second. Mahsus means like special. So in this yeah. case, because alcohol is banned in Iran, so that
1: guy was sending... With, with he was speaking with coats, he's like, "Do you want sose mahsus? Oh, Do and you and want a little yeah. bit of alcohol, I I illegal I alcohol, right.
0: with your pizza?" <laughs> when
1: I used to go to Iran, the Sosa mahsus was the white sauce, yeah. and it was the big joke amongst me and my brothers. We're like, "What is this special sauce? What are <laughs> they doing back there?" And
0: taking, the, the ranch dressing? It's
1: a white sauce. We're mm. like, what, "What is this sauce Yeah,
0: I'm sure there's some again, some chef, some. Uh, Persian pizzeria. That's like, how is he calling it ranch sauce? This is important. <laughs> but it tasted like, I mean, maybe it was just the place we got it from. It's, it yeah. tasted like not very good salad dressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's the puzzle of Persian pizza. One of our Rook funnies from a couple of years ago here in the studio. That's it. That's full time for Rook for today. The best of Rook continues all through August. Every Monday and Thursday. New shows posted. We appreciate you checking it out. Hey, our website is rookmedia.com where you can link to all things Rook related, all of our platforms, all of our programming, the contemporary history of Iran, unmarried Persian girls. It's all there. Rookmedia.com is the website. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, Smart Pega, Talented Anahita, Bearded Omid, Super P, Paddy Saw, and sound person, Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe. If you've not done so already on any or all of our platforms, find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever.